Morning, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our weekly Parsha Shir. I heard that the Israeli IRS, the Israeli Masach Nasar, office in charge of income tax, was dealing with it, was found themselves dealing with a problem. They realized that there were all these pop-up falafel and shawarma stands all over Eretz Yisrael, all over Yerushalayim. And there was no way to properly monitor these stands, you know, selling those falafels and shawarmas and all the rest of it. To pro there was no way to properly monitor them to make sure that they were paying the sufficient amount, the right amount of, of income tax. Um, this is, of course, you know, the country of Israel is a relatively young country. And the, the Israeli IRS is trying to figure out how can we properly manage, how can we properly stay on top of these mom and pop shops, these stands, to make sure that their books are accurate and that they are in fact recording uh, the honest amount of sales. So they thought about it and they came up with a plan. What they did was they had, they hired a bunch of elderly women um, and they went, they approached these different falafel stands at random, you know, all over Yerushalayim or whatever the case may be. And the, typically what would happen is the woman would walk in to the falafel stand and, uh, you know, ask if they could see the owner. And the owner was usually standing behind the counter, you know, frying the falafel or whatever the case may be. And uh, she says to him, look, I need to talk to you for a few minutes. Um, you know, can we step aside? And she pulls him to the side. And she would tell him, she would say, look, I am an elderly, I'm an elderly woman. Um, I am a Hashem protector. May Hashem protect us, I live alone. I'm, I'm, I'm an almona, my husband is no longer with us, my children live overseas, whatever the case may be. And uh, she would tell the owner of this falafel stand, she would say, you know, what, what really helps me, what really gives me peace and joy in life is that I go to the park every day, every other day, and I like to feed the birds. I like to throw little pieces of bread to the birds and I watch them come and eat it and it makes me feel good, it brings, it brings me inner peace. It feels good to know that I'm feeding the creations of Hashem and that the birds can eat the bread I'm throwing them. But to tell you the truth, I cannot afford to buy that much bread. I barely have enough money for myself and I'm struggling to pay for myself and for the birds, especially since as much bread as you throw out to the birds, that's how much they'll eat. So this woman tells the, the falafel uh, stand manager, she says, I have an idea. She says, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about the falafels that you sent, the, the, the falafels that you sell. And basically the way they work is you take, if any of you have ever eaten the falafel, you take a pita and the pita is basically a baked, baked bread that see, it's basically a pocket, but it's sealed all the way around. So in order to fill the pita with the falafel balls, with the hummus, with the salad, with all of the wonderful stuff that goes inside it, what, you actually, what they actually do is you slice off just the top piece of the pita. And then now, now you have a pocket and you fill it with all the wonderful stuff and you wrap it in paper and you sell it and everybody in Israel eats it and they love it. She says, I was, as I was walking by your falafel stand one day and I was watching you and your men make these falafels, I watched you slice off that slice of bread from the top and then throw it out. And I thought to myself, wait a second, you must be selling tens, if not hundreds of these falafels a day, which means ten or, tens or hundreds of these tiny little pieces of bread from the top of the falafels are just being tossed out. Now, it may not be a big deal to you, but she says, but you know what I can do with these? I can take them home. I can feed them to the birds. I can feed them to the squirrels. I can, I, I, it would provide me with, with untold uh, um, sense of satisfaction and purpose in life. So with all the sweetness she could muster, she would say to this falafel stand owner, would you please, you and your men, just instead of putting all of these pieces of bread straight into the garbage, take two or three big garbage bags, fill them up every day with these little pieces of bread, and my word of honor, I will come every day to your stand and pick them up at the end of the day. You don't have to worry about anything. If I don't show up, you can throw them out. But, but you're throwing them out anyways. Right, but I will come every day and pick up these two or three bags, whatever it is, and, uh, and I'll take them home and I'll do with it whatever I want. Anyways, the falafel store owner thinks to himself, well, I mean, what? of course, with pleasure. It's going to the garbage anyways. You want to come, you someday take it. 
Sure enough, the lady came every day for an entire year. And she picked up every day two or three or more bags of these tiny little pieces of bread. And she would take them home. Shut. <laughs> Comes the end of the year. Uh, time to file taxes. No, so the falafel owner goes to his accountant and he sits down and he fills out the paperwork. Bottom line. How much money did you make? How many falafels did you sell? And the guy puts down a number. 5,000 falafels. Over the course of a year, a falafel stand. 5,000 falafels. And then they make the cheshben based on that. How much were the expenses? How much is the overhead? How much profit did you make? How much did you sell them for? How much profit did you make, etc. Kids they file it with the IRS. And the IRS says, we're coming to audit you. That's the response they get. You're coming to audit me. I'm a falafel stand. Why are you coming to audit? Come audit, isn't it? So whoever is the representative of the eye of the Israeli uh, Revenue Service walks in and says, "You filed that you sell five thousand falafel. You sold five thousand falafel last year, yeah?" He says, "We know for a fact that you sold ten thousand falafel. We know for a fact that you sold ten thousand falafel. How could you possibly know that I sold ten thousand falafel? I'm telling you, I sold five. So they bring, at that point, they would bring in this woman. Do you recognize this lady? Yes, of course. She comes here every day at the end of the day and picks up little pieces of bread. Says the Israeli Revenue Service, she works for us. She's a spy. Her job was, before she served these pieces of bread to the birds, before she threw them out for all of Hashem's creations to eat them, she was hired by us, the tax service, to count them. And she knows exactly how many falafels you sold. Based on the amount of tiny little pieces of bread you threw out, it's exactly 10,762. <laughs> you know, these falafels, and basically based on that, they were able to catch them. All right, I don't know if the, if the system would be legal in the United States. I don't know if it isn't. I don't even know if the story is true. But as I gave to us, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a legend that captures how sometimes with Yiddish HaSeichel, you know, with the Yiddish HaKot, you can catch somebody in a place where they're not aware. Firstly, you cut off the little, tiny little piece and throw it out, you know, nobody notices. But if you count them, you can know how many pieces of, how many falafels there's still. All right. Why am I saying this? There's a very, very famous and intriguing passage in Gemara based on, based on a passage in this week's Parsha, Parsha's Vayra. The Gemara says, the Gemara relates that at the time of the, the, of the destruction of the first base of Mikdash, the first base of Mikdash was destroyed by a Babylonian king called Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar Melech Bob. At the time that he destroyed the first base of Mikdash and forced the Jews into exile, he wasn't just, Nebuchadnezzar was a very evil, sadistic man. He wasn't just, he wasn't satisfied with destroying the base of Mikdash. He wasn't satisfied with conquering Eretz Yisrael. He wasn't satisfied with forcing the Jews into exile. He wanted, like all of our enemies, Rahman al-Tzmei protect us, he wanted to break the Jewish spirit. He wanted, to, he wanted to hurt the Jewish soul. He could sense that there was something magical, divine, about the soul of a Yid. And he wanted to really, he wanted to really go after it. So he did something, he did something that he felt would offend, would psychologically and, and, and emotionally and more spiritually really, uh, really hurt, really pervert the Jews. What he did was he erected what the Gemara calls a tzelem. He erected some form of an idol, some form of an image. And he forced all the Jewish people to bow down to it. And all of them did, except for Daniel, Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah, as is very well known. So the Gemara says, in Masech Tepsachim, that the reason why Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah specifically, and soon maybe we'll get to why the Gemara talks about these three specifically, but the reason why Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah specifically did not bow down to this to this Selim, and everybody else did, says the Gemara, Nebuchadnezzar told them that if they don't bow down to this particular statue, Nebuchadnezzar said he would execute them. And not just he told them how he, not just he would execute them. He, he erected a fire, a great furnace of fire. And he told the Jews, anybody who doesn't bow down will be thrown into this furnace of fire. Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah, who refused to bow down, were actually cast into the furnace of fire. And they were miraculously saved, as is well known. All right. 
Says the Gemara, Maro Hananya Mishol Vazaria. Why did Hananya Mishol and Azaria, these three prophets, allow themselves to jump into the fire, allow themselves to be thrown into the fire? And according to some versions, they didn't just allow themselves, they actually threw themselves into the furnace of fire. Why did they do that? Says the Gemara, Nosu they, they deduced this from a passage in the, the passage in this week's Pasha, Pasha's Vaira, where it talks about the frogs. And they made what's called a Kalvachoimer. Kalvachoimer means it's, it, it, it's, it, it's, log, it's a logical form of deduction, which the Gemara refers to. If a certain law, if a certain scenario applies in a certain case, how much more so would apply in a different case? It's called a Kalvachoimer. They said like this they said the frogs, the Torah tells us, jumped into, jumped all over Egypt. They went everywhere. They went into the Egyptian homes. They even went eventually into uh, they even went eventually into the Egyptian fields. The Torah says they went um, they went actually into the into the actually went into the bodies of the Egyptians. They jumped into them into their innards, and they even went. The pasuk says, into their kneading troughs and into their ovens, which the Gemara the Gemara learns out means that they went into the ovens while the ovens were ablaze. The frogs jumped into the ovens while the ovens were burning, were, 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 were flaming with fire. So Hanani, Mishol, and Azariah said, if the frogs, in the plague of frogs, the second out of the 10, the second out of the 10 plagues, the second out of the seven plagues in this week's parsha, if the frogs would jump into the fire and the frogs are not even obligated, they're not giving them, given the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, they weren't, uh, they don't have the Zchosavis, they don't have, uh, you know, Yiddish and Hashem, they're frogs. And yet, if the frogs are willing to risk their lives for the sake of fulfilling the will of Hashem and afflicting the Egyptians with frogs, excuse me, they threw themselves into the heavens, said Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah, how much more so us, descendants of Abram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, ones who are actually commanded, given the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, we should for sure do so. And so they did so as well. This is the Gemara says, brought down in the Gemara, brought down the Medrash, very famous. Hanani, Mishal, and Azaria uh, deduced their course of action. They decided what to do based on what they saw with the frogs. Okay. It's a very puzzling, strange piece of, when you first read it, it sounds cute, right? Oh, the frogs jumped into the fire. So Hanani, Mishal, and Azaria said, if they did, we should for sure should throw us onto the, it sounds, uh, you know, when you first read it, it sounds, pardon the expression, it sounds midrashic, like, uh, you know, whatever like a cute uh, little tyrant. The commentaries struggle with it for many reasons, but first and foremost, from a halachic, from a halachic perspective, what do you mean, Hoistus in particular and others, what do you mean, Hananya, Mishol, and Azariah learned this halacha from the frogs? That means what? If there was no story of the frogs, if Hashem had, had brought nine plagues upon the Egyptians, not 10, or he brought 10, but instead of frogs, he would have brought the uh, he would have brought lizards. <laughs> or if the frogs hadn't jumped into the fire, then what? Then Hanani, Mishol, and Azariah wouldn't jump into the fire, wouldn't have allowed themselves to be thrown into the furnace of fire, or jumped into the fire. The commentators say, what do you mean? First of all, Nebuchadnezzar was asking them to bow down to idols. For the sake of not bowing down to idols, every Jew is obligated to give away their lives. If a guy builds a fire and says, either you bow down to the idol or I'll throw you into the fire, a Jew is obligated to, to, to not bow down to idols. For 600 out of the 613 mitzvahs, for 610, 610 mitzvahs you can violate to save your life, three you cannot. Avoid the Zorgular, idol worship, murder, and, and immorality and incest. So, Hanani Mishal Nazari would do what they were supposed to do. And it's even worse, because in this case, it was in public. In public, the halacha is, you always have to give away your life. Rather than desecrate a mitzvah. So what do Hanani, Mijol, and Azar, you need to talk about frogs for? What's it got to do with frogs? Nebuchadnezzar challenged the Jews. Either they worship Avoid Zora in public, or they get thrown into the fire. No. It's avoid the Zorah and it's in public. For two reasons, they were obligated to give away their lives. Forget the fraud, he went from the frogs. Many different answers and explanations are given. I want to quote one. This, is, this one is from Toysfus. Toysfus says, Toysfus is a commentary on the outside page of the Gomorrah. Toysfus says, one second, Toysfus says, one second. 
Hananya Mishol and Azariah didn't made this Kalvachimer, and they allowed themselves to be thrown into the fire. Again, according to some opinions, they didn't just allow themselves, they actually threw themselves into the fire. But let's go with the, they allowed themselves to be thrown in. They allowed themselves to be thrown into the fire. Okay, says Tysus, wait a second. But there was another person who didn't bow down to avoid the Zorah. Daniel. Daniel, Hanani, Mishol, and Azariah. What about Daniel? Where is he? Tysus gives a hair-raising answer. He doesn't make it up. It's based on the Gemara. The Gemara says Daniel saw what was happening. He saw the temperature, the way things were going. He took an opportunity and he ran away. Vayivrach. Off he ran. Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah had the opportunity to also run away. This, this, is, this, is, this is an incredible answer. Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah also had the opportunity to, could have, to, to run away. They could have run. And if they would have run, they would have saved themselves that they wouldn't have to bow down to idols in public, to an idol in public, and they wouldn't have to face the death penalty because they disappeared. All right, later Daniel was discovered, but by the time he was discovered, the whole thing was over and the king allowed him to live. So the question, Maro, Hanani, Mishol, and Azariah, is not a question of why they allowed themselves to be thrown into a fire rather than to worship idols. The question is why they didn't avoid the whole confrontation in the first place. They should have disappeared and ran away. Says the Gomorrah, you know why they didn't run away? When they had the opportunity to, they could have run and saved themselves. You know why they didn't? You know why they stayed to face the music and to face the Bukhadetzer and to face this life-threatening challenge in the presence of all the Jews? They learned it from the frogs. They said, wait a second. The frogs were never commanded to jump into the fire. The frogs could have run away. The frogs could have gone God knows where. The frogs could have, could have gone to the, the Egyptians' bedrooms, bathrooms, whatever. But yet, at least, the, yet the frogs, at least some of them, went willing. The frogs could have also run away. They went willingly on their own and they jumped into the fire. Said Hanani Mishol of Azariah, we are no, we are no more cowardice. We are not more afraid than those frogs. If those frogs didn't run away, we don't have to run away. Halakhically, they were allowed to. They could have run. They said, we're not going anywhere. We're staying right here. And when the Vuchanetzer challenges, challenges us with bowing down to idols, we're going to say no. You'll throw us into the furnace of fire. We'll go into the furnace of fire. No less than the frogs. This is, this, is one of, this is one of the explanations. Okay. And now I call your attention to a commentary of the Balaturim, of course. If you have a Chumash in front of you, this Balaturim is in Perakses, Posuk Aleph, chapter 8, verse 1, where the Torah is speaking about the, the, the plague of the frogs, the second, the second plague that the Egyptians faced. Vayem Rashem al-Moshe says the Posuk Hashem said to Moshe, Emerald Aaron, speak to Aaron. Stretch out your hand while you hold the staff with the staff in it. Al over the rivers, Al over the lakes, and over the swamps. Every collection, every large collection of water in all of Mitzrayim. And bring up the frogs over the land of Mitzrayim. And the Posak says, Aaron stretches out his hand. <coughs> Actually, initially only one frog came up, but from that came a whole, whole, a whole plague, of, plague of frogs, and, and the frogs cover the land exactly as, as Hashem said it would. Says the Balaturim, says the Balaturim, on the words, an instruction. Hashem tells Moshe, Hashem tells Moshe, Hashem tells Moshe to tell Aaron to stretch out his hand and bring up these frogs. Vahal says the Balaturim, you know how this goes. Vahal beis b'mesayra. Says the Balaturim, the word Vahal. Exactly in that, in that uh, grammatical pronunciation. Vahal appears twice in the entire Torah. Number one, Vahal asatzfardim. Bring up the frogs. Number two, gut-wrenching. Gut-wrenching. What a pasuk. This is from Bamidbor Perekhov Pasuk Chafei. Parshas Chukas. About 
15, if I remember correctly, 15 or 20 psukim after the story of Moshe and Aaron hitting the rock, in which they were told by Hashem, as we're going to get into in a minute, which we were told by Hashem that they're not, they're not going into Eretz Yisrael. Hashem tells Moshe, Parshas Chukas, Bamidbar Perekhov take Aaron, your brother, the Lozer Benoy and the Lozer, his son, quote, the Ha'al Oislam Hoyer Hohor, and take them up to a place called Hoyer Hohor, a mountain on top of the mountain. It was a one way journey. Three people went up, two people came down. Aaron died on Hoyer Hohor. And the Jewish people mourned for him unanimously, like never before and never after in Jewish history. To the best of my knowledge, we don't find anywhere else that any one individual was mourned by, quote, every Jewish man, woman, and child mourned for the death of this individual other than Aaron HaKoyim. And that's the only other place, says the Balatur, in the entire Torah, where the same word is used. Wow! Now, what could possibly be the connection between these two? In one case, we're talking about Aaron bringing up frogs to afflict the Egyptians. An important story, but, but, but we're talking about one out of the ten plagues. And the other, Bahal, the death of Aaron, as orchestrated, as facilitated by Moshe Rabbeinu himself on this place called Hoyer So, thank God the Baal Torah explains. What is the connection? He quotes the Gemara we're talking about. Why did Hanani, Mishol, and Azari allow themselves to be burned? They deduced it from the frogs. They allowed themselves to be thrown into a furnace of fire, al And here he adds something, actually, not from the Gemara, but this is from the Medrash. The Medrash adds something that changes the story completely. He says, the because the frogs, these frogs, that 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 uh, these particular frogs that ended up in the ovens, again, while the ovens were ablaze. Because these frogs had Kiddush Hashem and jumped into the furnace of fire, therefore they, and they alone, were saved. At the end of the plague of frogs, as the Pesach goes on to say, in nine looking from here, at the end of the plague, when Moshe made a davens to Hashem to stop and the plague ends, the Pesach says, the frogs died. Now listen to these words, quote, minabotim from the homes, minachatseris from the courtyards, uminasodesim from the fields but not from the ovens. When the Pesach describes what happened to the frogs at the end of the plague, and it says the frogs all died by a Muslim and it says they died in the homes and in the fields and the courtyards, all of a sudden it omits the frogs from the, from, the, from the furnaces, from the ovens. From here we see, says the Medrash, that ironically those frogs didn't die. The whole story gets turned around. Every other frog that was hanging around in all the safe places, in the fields, the homes, in the courtyards, they survived. You know who died? You know, excuse me, they died. You know who didn't die? The frogs that were in the ovens. It was a special reward for them for, for, for having this mysterious nefesh. Based on this, by the way, based on this, it's possible to explain something else. It's, poss it's possible to add a deeper, a deeper level to this. If Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah are looking at these frogs and saying, look at this, the frogs that jumped into the fires survived, it's possible that according to this, Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah also believe that they will survive, even though it's not what they say. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, we're not worthy of Hashem saving us. He's, they said, Hashem made a miracle for, for Avram of you. Know, he was saved because he was great. We have no such intention. We have no such plan that Hashem, Hashem will make this kind of a miracle for us. But maybe if they're learning from the frogs, maybe they're thinking inside their heads, maybe if Hashem saved the frogs, they'll save us too. 
which would explain how they were allowed, halachically, to allow themselves to be thrown into the furnace of fire and, allow, and put their own lives at risk rather than, rather than run away. You see, that's also difficult to understand. Okay, they learned the Kalvachimah from frogs, but frogs are not obligated to save their own lives, and Hanani, Mishol, and Azari are obligated to save their own lives. Wait a second, says the Balaturim, again, quoting from the Medrash. Wait a second, says the Balaturim, the frogs who jumped into the fire survived. Every frog died, they didn't. So maybe they believed, maybe they believed that they would survive too. Okay. Hananya, Mishol, and Azario says, says the, says the Gomorrah, says the Balaturim, they learned from the frogs who jumped into the furnaces and survived. Punchline. Avul Moshe v'Aaron, but when it comes to Moshe and Aaron, Shnem Rabohen, after the story of the, of, the, of, the, of the hitting of the rock, instead of speaking to the rock, it says, Hashem says to them, Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron, you did not believe in me, you didn't sanctify me, you missed an opportunity to make a Kiddush Hashem. Says the Balaturim, which means, they learned the Kalvachimer from the, from the frogs and sanctified Hashem's name in public. They were saved. Moshe and Aaron, the Possek says, missed an opportunity to make a Kiddush Hashem, which means, says the Balaturim, they didn't learn from the frogs. What was their, what was their consequence? Mesu, they did die. Because of that, they did die. And they did not merit to go into Eretz Yisrael. All right, the commentaries on the Balaturim explain that what he means is, had Moshe and Aaron not hit the rock, they would have merited to go into Eretz Yisrael, and they would have lived. How long would they have lived? They would have lived, please God, long lives till, I mean, Moshe died at 120. Aaron died, at, I believe, at 123. I think. Yeah, Aaron died at 123. So they lived, Baruch Hashem, they lived long lives, but they would have lived much longer had they gone into Eretz Yisrael. The reason why they die now is because they don't merit to go into Eretz Yisrael because they didn't make a Kiddush Hashem because they didn't learn a Kalvachimer from the frogs. They died and they didn't merit to go into Eretz Yisrael. And that, says the Balaturim, is the reason why the same word, Baha'u, is used by the frogs. And when Moshe takes Aaron and his son to the top of the mountain to, to, for Aaron to pass, same word, to tell you that the solution to one lies in the other. And the story of Aaron dying in the top of Hoirahor and Moshe Rabbeinu dying in Harnavoy could have all been avoided had they done what Hanani, Mishol, and Azariah did, learned from the frogs. And then they would have cheated death or avoided death or at least postponed it for a while. This is the commentary of the Balaturi. Again, I want to summarize what he's saying. He's saying the words v'ha'al, v'ha'al, vov hey ayin lamed v'ha'al, appears with that pronunciation, appears twice in the whole Torah. Once by the frogs, the other by the death of, of Aaron, and by extension, the death of Moshe. Why? Because when the, by the frogs we find that those frogs that had Messias Nefesh and, and were prepared to throw themselves, not just prepared, and jumped into the fires, miraculously survived. Everybody else died. All the other frogs died. Hananya, Mishol, and Azariah learned from those frogs, allowed themselves to be thrown into the fire, or even literally like the frogs, jumped into the furnace of fire in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, and they were saved. They cheated death. Badafka by not running away, Badafka by facing the Vuchadnezzar, and maybe even throwing themselves into the fire. Moshe and Aaron, on the other hand, they didn't learn from the frogs. This is, this is a, it's a tremendous thing for the Balaturim to say. Moshe and Aaron do not learn from the frogs. They, they miss the opportunity for Kiddush Hashem. They beat the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And because of that, they died and they don't go into Eretz Yisrael. Had Moshe and Aaron properly meditated, had they properly digested, this is what the Balaturim is saying, had Moshe and Aaron properly digested the message of the frogs, like Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah did, 
the story would have ended differently. They would have made a Kiddush Hashem. They would have gone into Eretz Yisrael and they would, not, they would not have died, at least not on top of Hoyer Hahar and Harnavoy. Okay. The obvious difficulty with understanding this, with understanding this Baal HaTurim is that it's difficult to understand what he wants with Moshe and Aaron not learning from the frogs. It, it, it seems very disconnected. In other words, Hanani, Mishol, and Azariah, they faced a furnace of fire. They faced a physical furnace of fire, like the frogs did. So we can understand what, what they said. They said, look, the frogs, bottom line, jumped into a fire. We should allow ourselves to go into the fire too. But what's it got to do with Moshe and Aaron? Moshe and Aaron with, with, with Amaisa, with, with hitting a rock instead of speaking to a rock. At that moment, poop, they should have thought about the frogs. Like what? <laughs> Difficult to understand what he means. At that point, when they're standing on top of the rock with the stick, they should have remembered the message of the frogs that jumped into the furnace. And then they would have made a Kiddush Hashem. You have to go to frogs to learn to make a Kiddush Hashem. Everybody, you have to make a Kiddush Hashem. One of the 613 mitzvahs. The only example in Torah of making a Kiddush Hashem is, is, is from the frogs. So again, even by Hanani, Mishol, and Azari, it's a little difficult to understand. But, but at least over there, the idea is that again, they were cast into a furnace of fire. But Moshe and I has nothing to do with fire. There was no situation of Messiris Nefesh over there. It was a question of, of the, it, it says they first, Rashi says, when Hashem told them to get water from the rock, that they did. They beat the rock, but they beat the wrong rock. And then, uh, no, excuse me, they talked to the rock, but they talked to the wrong rock. When they hit the rock, they hit the right rock, whatever in heaven's name that means. And yet the Balaturim is saying, no, 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 no. The secret, the solution, the, 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 the real hinge here is the story of the frogs. And had Moshe and Aaron properly digested that the way Hanani, Mishol, and Azariah did, they would have saved their own lives. This is unbelievable. They would have saved their own lives and they would have merited to go into Eretz Yisrael. Okay, to explain this, perhaps... I want, to, I want to share over one idea that the Lubavitcher Rebbe once shared specifically, uniquely about the plague of the Tzfardim. Um, based, on a, based on a medrash, there's an expression in the medrash. It says, Hashem says, if not for the frogs, how would Almighty God have afflicted the Egyptians? Um, in other words, there's something unique, to, unique about the frogs. So, so what is it? So, so here's Again, one of the ideas that, that the Rebbe explained. He said, think about the 10 plagues for a minute, all right? If you think about it, the one that really seems the most pointless is the Tzfarim, is the frogs. If you again, if you think about them all, the first one, the Makov Dam, that's very logical. That's, that's very, it's very straightforward and easy to understand. The Nilus, the Nile River was the source of all the Egyptian Parnassus. They're, all of their finances, the entire economy was, was and is based in the Nile River. It was a source of irrigation. It was their God. They, they worshipped the Nile River. So the first thing that Hashem strikes is the Nile River. That's perfect, perfectly logical. Okay. What else? All the other plagues, wild animals, um, pestilence, uh, locusts, every other plague either affected the body of the Egyptians, either hurt them physically in some cases, killed them physically. In some cases, at least affected their economy, consumed their crops, uh, consumed their cattle, consumed their livestock, consumed their livestock, etc. Every other, even even the plague of lice, at least lice carry disease. Lice, the lice hurt them. Um, you know, things like that. It was on their bodies, etc. You have this business. It's them. We don't find anywhere that the frogs did any particular damage. The Torah doesn't say that they damaged anything anywhere in Mitzrayim. It doesn't say that they, uh, that they hurt anybody. Frogs don't carry venom. They don't carry disease to the best of my knowledge. It seems like a completely benign experience. What's the point? 
right? If the Rebbeinu Shlolem, if Hashem, if God Almighty is going to fill the land with some animals, so bring these poisonous snakes. Bring uh, I don't know dogs with rabies. May Hashem protect us. Bring bobcats. I well, whatever. I mean, what such frogs? <laughs> Why? This, actually, if you think about it, it's really kind of strange. Again, the, you know, again, so Rashi says that the frogs jump into the innards of the mitzvah of the Egyptians and sort of while they were inside them, they, they, you know, they croaked, they did as frogs did, but it doesn't say that the Egyptians became ill because of this. It doesn't say that they, anybody died because of this. It's like much, it seems like much ado about nothing. Seems like a bit of a waste of a plague. Why? In fact, you find something very interesting. All the frogs did was basically just irritate the Egyptians, like irritate them to no end, you know, drive them nuts. But you find something very interesting. When Moshe offers Paroi, he says, when do you want me to take these frogs away? Paroi tells him tomorrow. Paroi says, you're going to dive into Hashem to take away the frogs? But Moshe says, I'm going to dive into take, when do you want him to go? Paroi says, you know what, tomorrow. And the comment... <coughs> The commentaries actually talk about this. Why Pari would say tomorrow? Why not now, immediately? But but one thing you see for sure is that it wasn't the end of the world, right? If, if they come to Pari and say, when should we end Makas B'chayras? When should we end uh, the, the, the hail hailing down on our heads? What do you mean, when should we end it? Now! Desperate, right now! Frogs tomorrow? So this whole business, this whole business of the Tzvardim is a difficult, is, is a difficult marker to understand. Why would Hashem do, why would Hashem do this? And again, the, the expression of the Medrash is Hashem saw this as the one most effective plague to, to, to challenge the Egyptians. Okay. So here's the Rebbe's explanation. He says like this. He says, I'm going to give you my own example, right? But, but to articulate his idea. He says there's three types of attitudes when it comes to a person reacting to, to when, it comes, when it comes to a person reacting to their belief in God. Some people embrace it. Some people believe, right? You come to a Jew, tell them, do a mitzvah, right? Ah, why not? Okay. They embrace it enthusiastically, non-enthusiastically, to one degree or another, they accept. Beautiful. That's one. That's always the best type of reaction, right? Come for Shabbos, thank you very much. All right, that's one. On the opposite extreme, you have those who are at war. I remember when I was a, when I was a young, young yeshiva student, we used to go every Friday to put on tefillin with Jews in Tel Aviv, in a street in Tel Aviv called Dizengoff Street, where uh, no yeshiva bachar, unless he's there to put on tefillin with other Jews, should ever go. And I remember I was probably 16 and a half years old. I walked over to a Jew, excuse me, slicha, you know, are you Jewish? You want to put on tefillin? And he literally, I remember this, as God is my witness. He literally raised his arm and he said to me in a Hebrew, I didn't fully at the time understand, thank God. He said to me, you get out of here or I'm going to beat you up. Wow. That's an angry Jew. That's a Jew who's spiritually and probably mentally and many other ways in pain but that was his reaction to me i got this reaction he said to me you get away from me or i'm going to beat the living daylights out of you well, he didn't say it in english he said it in a much more colorful hebrew i to tell you the truth i ran away <laughs> maybe i should have thought about the frogs <laughs> i don't know but to tell you the truth i did i ran away i'm like no thank you i'm good i'm gonna go outside. that's the second kind of reaction animosity fight you know those two although they are on opposite extremes right the one who embraces you the one who embraces or the one who fights both to the both of these two are generally workable you can you can work with these two in one form or another but there's a third type which is the worst of them all the third type we call the apathetic the indifferent I don't care. I'm not getting upset. I'm not getting angry. I'm not happy. I'm just not interested. It doesn't affect me. In a spiritual sense, 
this is, this is the most difficult to deal with out of them all. Because at least if somebody's fighting with you, there's energy, right? Those, you, know, the, you know those couples that, that, that come in. They're fighting with each other. Yeah, but if they're fighting with each other, at least they care. At least they're invested. At least, at least it's Rir Tzayon. At least, they're, at least they're, they're worked up about it. That means, they're, that means they're invigorated about this. All you need to do is channel the energy, you know, from here to there. There's a great Jewish joke about an, about an atheist, right? A, a Jewish atheist. And uh, he doesn't want to send his son to a, Jew, to a Jewish school because they're going to indoctrinate his kid, you know, with Torah and mitzvahs and all the rest of it. So what is he going to do? The only other option is to send his kid to a Christian school. So never having no other choice, the joke goes, the Jewish atheist sends his kid to a Christian school. Sure enough, the kid comes home after a couple of days, tells his father, you know what we learned? We learned that there's not, we learned that there's the father and the son and the, you know, and the brother and the sister. He was like, there's all sorts of deities going on. And the father grabs his son by the shoulder, you know, like this. And he shakes him and he says, listen to me, kid. Listen to me, David. I'm going to tell you something very important. There is only one God and we don't believe in him. There is only one God and we don't believe in him. In other words, yes, he's an atheist, but he's a yid. He's got an ashama. Somewhere deep down, he knows the truth. So he's angry, so he's bitter, so he's resentful, probably, or perhaps for all sorts of legitimate reasons. But if you fight, it means you care. It means you're invested. There's something to work with. If you're indifferent, you know, if you're professional and polished, and just brush it off. Then that means you're indifferent. Then you're far away. You see, there's, there's, there's a point. Sometimes when people want attention, they'll compliment you. They'll hope to get attention from you by complimenting you. Positive attention. Sometimes if they cannot get positive attention for you and they're desperate enough, they'll offend you. At least they'll get negative attention from you. Negative attention can be better than no attention. May not be a healthy relationship, but at least it's a relationship. And then there are those relationships in which there is just absolute cold ice. Indifference. That's where the real abuse happens. That's, that's where the real emotional damage takes place. In marriages, parents and children, whatever the case may be, where it's just dead quiet, silent. Kids will sometimes do anything to get negative attention from their parents. At least shout at me. Don't ignore me. For a child to be ignored can be more hurtful, can be more painful than to be, to be emotionally and even physically abused. In other words, being ignored can, can be more emotionally abusive and more emotionally painful. Some Jews are in love with God. God bless. Some Jews are in deep conflict with God. Even they at least have some sort of a relationship. And then there are those, those, those two Jews are not in danger. They're, they're relating to Hashem. They're struggling with Hashem. They're embracing Hashem. Not too far apart. But then there are those Jews who are in danger. Those are the Jews who've gone cold, detached, ice, apathetic. In a spiritual sense, that's the most dangerous of them all. Okay. Look back in the Pesukim, in Parsha Shmois, the first time Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Paroi, and, and a message of Hashem, of course. And he tells Paroi, this is in the beginning of Perak Dalet, they speak to Paroi for the first time. They say to him, so, so says God. So says Almighty God himself, the God of the Jews, release my people. Let them come and celebrate me. They come and celebrate and worship me in the desert. 
All right. The pitch is made. Moshe and Aaron come clean with Pare. They'll listen, Pare. We're here. We're here to petition you to release the Jews. How does Pare respond? Remember this? Vayoymer Pare. Listen to these words. Vayoymer Pare. And Pare says, Mi Hashem asher eshma b'koyloi l'shalach es Yisrael. Lo yodati es Hashem. V'gam es Yisrael lo yashaleach. I'll translate. Pare says, Mi Hashem. Mem yud, Mi Hashem. It's almost like Pare is saying, you can almost hear the, the, the professionalism, the, the white glove approach of Pare, the, the moral high ground that he speaks from. Pare says, excuse me, who is this God of whom you speak that I should send the Jews? Who, who is this? I don't, <laughs> I don't know of what you speak. And no, the Jews I shall not send. Pare, at least at first, doesn't get angry, doesn't get worked up. He doesn't attack. He doesn't stand up and go, you tell your God not to mess with me, right? You tell your God he can... You offer them tea, sit down, says, I simply don't know what you're talking about. The issue you bring to me, Pare, is irrelevant. I don't like it. I don't hate it. I'm not concerned with it. I'm not, not concerned with it. Not on my itinerary, not my agenda. He literally says, Lawyer about this. I don't know. God, I about. That was the worst reaction of them all. At least the party would have gotten angry. He got worked up. Tell your God, I'm ready to I'm ready to wrestle him any day. At least if Pari did that, Pari would have been in the boxing ring. Sooner or later, he would have gotten knocked out. Paris is not getting in the boxing ring with you. I don't even know who you are. I'm not going to see you. I, I, don't, even, I don't even think. What are you talking about? Excuse me, says Pari. Who, what? Huh? And if I didn't hear you the first time, I won't hear you the second time. I don't know what you're saying. I don't know. He didn't say he believes. He didn't say he doesn't believe. He didn't say yes. He didn't say no. Eventually, Pari gets upset. But he gets upset at Moshe and Aaron and says, you're bothering the you're bothering the people with nonsense, with frivolities. So the Rabbi Shalom chose to send upon Pari the plague of frogs. What are frogs, says the Rebbe? Well, frogs are obviously part of Almighty God's master eco, masterful ecosystem. Yes, of course. Everything is part of the system. But other than that, as far as a human being is concerned, frogs are pretty irrelevant generally. We don't eat them. We're not, maybe we're a little irritated by them. Maybe we're repulsed by them, but they're not positive creatures, particularly, not particularly positive creatures. They're not particularly negative creatures. They're just things that exist in the world. Frogs, benign little things. Again, if you see them hopping around your living room, you're not particularly excited or welcoming to see them, but you're not afraid they're going to hurt you. You're not, uh, it's not like seeing a snake, Rahman al-Islam. It's kind of like an example. It's an example of a creature that Hashem put in this world that doesn't, again, in the ecosystem, yes, but as far as a human being is concerned, doesn't really contribute much. I don't know that, that in, in most, in the vast majority, of the world, I don't know that people eat them very much, maybe a little bit, but, but not that much. And uh, we're not particularly afraid of them. They're not particularly dangerous. They're not particularly... In Yiddish, it's called a nishka. Nishka das, nishka yens. In the larger scale of things, most of us do not spend too much time or patience or energy of our lives worrying or be con being concerned with frogs. Now, I don't want any, uh, any animal right activists to be offended by what I'm saying. I'm not saying they're not important, and I'm not saying they don't have to be treated right, and I'm not saying it's okay to, to, to be disrespectful to them in any way. I'm not, I'm not saying none of that. I'm just saying as far as a human life is concerned, they don't generally contribute anything, and they don't generally, hurt, don't generally threaten anything. If there's a larger population of frogs or a smaller population of frogs, It doesn't make any 
difference. So Hashem brings frogs to the Egyptians because the frogs, these sort of perceived as largely irrelevant creatures, they represent Paroi's attitude to Hashem. It's an attitude of indifference. It's benign. It's not significant. It's here today. It's like, like I said before, Paroi said, you want to get rid of them? Get rid of them tomorrow, right? And Hashem says, now watch what's going to happen. These frogs are going to jump into the fires, Hashem says, to fulfill my wishes. And there, right there, right there, you have actually the purpose of the plague of frogs in the first place. Hashem wanted Paroi and his men and his people to watch these seemingly, in the larger scale, insignificant creatures jump with all four feet into a raging furnace of fire, be prepared to die as frogs for the sake of fulfilling the will of Hashem. Wanted, the Rabbanish Lila wanted to sound an alarm bell here and say to these Egyptians, say to Paroi, you have to understand, Hashem says, what's going on here. Every part of existence, including you, the cold, indifferent, apathetic, non-caring Egyptian, every part of existence is created to facilitate the will of Hashem. And when we uncover the purpose of it, it jumps into a raging furnace of fire. It's ready to burn itself up alive for the sake of fulfilling its mission of Hashem. Even you, Paroi, and even you, the Egyptians, who are spiritual frogs, who are spiritually cold and indifferent and detached, even you are one day, when you realize the purpose of your existence, when you realize that you were also created by Hashem, when you realize that you also have a spark of divinity within you, you one day are also going to be ready to jump into the fire of Hashem. One day we're going to turn your apathy, your cold, your coldness, we're going to turn it into fiery enthusiasm for godliness. That was the purpose of the frogs. It was an educational lesson. Hashem wanted them to see this and go, wow, look at this. A cold frog jumping into a furnace of fire. Okay, let's conclude the Dvar Torah. Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah are standing there Nebuchadnezzar has just destroyed the Beis HaMikdash. The Jewish people are going into Golis after being in Eretz Yisrael for 850 years. They're about to face a 70-year exile. And Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah know that the most dangerous, the most threatening part of Jewish exile is not just that Jews will be faced with anti-Semites. Not just that Jews will be faced with, with Nebuchadnezzars of the world. There can be a much more dangerous element to Golis, and that is where the Jews, because of the pain they've been through, because of, because of all the time they spent in Golis, the Jews start to lose their fire. You know, it's like there are certain people, there are certain people who... who just by nature, you know, they're very loud, they can be very aggressive, they can be, you know, you'll always hear them shouting and screaming. Rahman al-Islam, when they become ill, they become quiet. They have no strength. So their family members or their friends will say, you know how we know that Yankel is gesund? You know how we know that he's healthy? When he sits up in his hospital bed and starts shouting, when, he's, when he lets rip at the nurses and the doctors and curses the Gehenim out of them, Oh, Hashem, that we know that he's healthy, that we know that he's kicking, he's coming back to himself. We'll be so happy to hear it. Hanani, Mishol, and Azariah say, Jews have souls. Souls are flaming fires. The problem in Golis is that they sometimes grow cold. That can be the most dangerous part of Golis. Now Nebuchadnezzar is standing there, he's erected an idol, and he's telling them all to bow down. Hanani, Mishol, and Azariah say, we can run away. 
but we're not going to. We're not going to. We're going to stand there and we're going to we're going to allow ourselves to be thrown into the furnace of fire or even jump in with our own two feet. We'll learn it from the frogs. We'll learn it from the message of the frogs. That although something may seem cold on the outside, you have to uncover, you have to reveal its neshama where it's ready to burn with the fire of Messias Nefesh. And they did. And they were saved. What is it, in a spiritual sense, what does it mean they were saved? It means they uncover, they reveal the neshama of the Yid, even when it's hidden behind apathy and coldness. Most of the time when people say they don't care, what they really mean is that they care so much that it hurts. It hurts the, sometimes too often. It hurts to care. You can numb the pain. You can, you can, you can anesthetize the pain. By, 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 by telling yourself or by trying to not care. That's what most people mean when they say we don't care. Hanani, Mishol, and Azariah stand in front of the Jewish people and say, we need to care. And we need to teach this message to the Jews and we need to show it to them. And so for the sake of not bowing down to idols, instead of running away, they stay there and they jump into the fire. Says the Balaturim, concludes the Balaturim, if only Moshe and Aaron, if only Moshe and Aaron had absorbed the same message, they would have taken the Jews into Eretz Yisrael. What's it got to do with Moshe and Aaron? You see, my friends, Moshe and Aaron beat the rock instead of speaking to the rock. What's the difference? The commentaries explain between beating a rock and speaking to a rock. A rock represents what? A rock represents stubborn resistance. Rocks are heavy, they're immobile, they're, they're generally perceived as dead, dead objects. Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron, go and take water out of a rock. But a, a rock, a rock is the most dead thing that we know. Nothing can ever grow from it. There's, there's no life. It's just, you know, lifeless. Hashem says, water from the rock. Okay. But water can be taken from the rock in one of two ways. By speaking to it or by beating it. What's the difference? Speaking to it means you believe it has the potential. Speaking to it means you work with it rather than against it. Speaking to it means you look at this rock and you say, you only look, <laughs> you only look like a rock. But deep inside, you have the potential to give life-nourishing and life-sustaining water that will save the entire Jewish nation. Please rock. Speaking to it means you appeal to it. Please rock. Show us who you really are. We believe in you. That's the message when you speak to a rock. What's the message when you beat a rock? When you pick up a stick and you, and you, you beat it. What's the message then? The message then is, look, rock, you're just a dumb rock. There's nothing really we can do with you. Hashem has said we can get the water out of you. So, and out came the water. It worked, Hashem said. It worked. But they didn't think about the frogs. They didn't think about the message of the frogs. They didn't think about how something as lifeless or insignificant or seemingly dead, only seems dead on the outside. You see, the frogs only seem insignificant superficially. Really, they're burning with the fire of Messias Nefesh. And so Hashem was telling Pari and the Egyptians, you're only pretending to be apathetic. It's not true. The truth is you really do care. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you that you do. And so Hashem wanted Moshe and Aaron to display this message in front of the, to the, the entire Jewish people. The rock, the commentaries say, represents our own Yetzir Hora. Our own Yetzir. There's two approaches with our own Yetzir Hora. One is to beat it. Tell Yetzir Hora, you're evil. There's nothing I can do with you. Beat you up till I weaken you, till your resistance wears off and I push you out of the way. Not enough. Hashem says, it wasn't enough of a Kiddush Hashem. Yan lo yemantan To make a true Kiddush Hashem is to talk to the rock, to work with it, to empower it, to elevate it, and to show that that deep within its resistance, within its coldness, is life-nourishing water. Because Moshe and Aaron didn't do this, Hashem said, you're not taking the Jewish people into Eretz Yisrael. 
That's not the message. That's not the, the leader. That's not the, the mission statement of the Yidin going into Eretz Yisrael. In Eretz Yisrael, they're going to encounter many rocks, figuratively, literally, and, 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 and in all senses. The Jewish people need to be taught to work with the rocks, to talk to it, not to beat them. You're not the ones to take the Jewish people into Eretz Yisrael. And so Moshe and Aaron, the ones who took the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim, died there in the desert. In the end, Hashem says, the message has got to go deeper. Who mastered this? Who mastered this? The Baal Turim is saying. Tanani Mishol and Azariya did. Because they said, if cold, seemingly insignificant, dead on the outside frogs, can jump into a fire to, to fulfill the word of Hashem, then surely every Jew, even if the Jew says, I don't care, and even if the Jew says, I don't believe, and even if the Jew says, this is not important to me, surely we can inspire every Jew to display their belief in Hashem, that they'd be prepared to be thrown into a furnace of fire, or more correctly, we can reveal the neshama, which is a flame of fire, that burns with love and connection to Hashem. Have a wonderful week. May we 